turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, and follow along as I read that for you. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I promised you last week that I would pick up at 1 Timothy 2:13 and 14, and I will. I thought that the message would develop into Galatians 3, and it didn't. Uh, therefore, I'm not going to say anything about what John just read, <laughs> except this. Galatians 3:28. there is neither male nor female does not mean there are no role distinctions in marriage and in the church. And I think in one sentence, the easiest way to demonstrate that would be to say that if you deny it, you will wind up affirming homosexuality. I have watched my friends from seminary. I have watched evangelical leaders move in exactly that direction. If you take that verse, there is neither male nor female to its logical conclusion along those lines, you will affirm lesbianism and you will affirm homosexuality in the end, which the Bible clearly indicts as sin. What it means when it says there is neither male nor female is not that you can marry a man if you're a man because there's no difference between a man and a woman, or that you can marry a woman if you're a woman because there is no difference between a man and a woman. It means that before God you stand on level ground. You are equally saved, equally heirs, equally clothed with Christ, equally baptized into Christ, equal heirs of the kingdom, equal, full of joy, and many other ways that I've tried to lay open in the past. That's the end of my sermon on Galatians 3.28. I think you're really more interested in how I handle verses 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy 2. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I'll just remind you of what we said last week with regard to the preceding couple or three verses might be good to read verses 11 and 12. First Timothy 2, verse 11, Let a woman learn in quietness with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men, but to be in quietness. Now, what I've been trying to show, and this is the last message in the series, though it's, of course, not the last word on the topic, What I've been trying to show in these messages is that Paul, Jesus, Moses in Genesis do not arbitrarily assign roles to men and women. 
nor do they assign them merely on the basis of passing cultural uh, expectations, nor are roles as God intends them, owing to sin in the world. Rather, uh, the roles that God has laid out for men and women are owing to the way he set things up at the beginning in creation and the way he shaped and formed us in our manhood and womanhood. And I believe that uh, manhood and womanhood mesh best, most effectively in ministry, that we, in our manhood and womanhood, are better preserved and better nurtured and more fulfilled and more fruitful on God's order of things in the home and, and in the church than on any other order that anybody can think of. Now, that brings us to verses 13 and 14 because these verses are given as some kind of underpinning or explanation or rationale for the preceding statement that men ought to be primarily responsible for leadership and teaching in the church. And we need to try to understand these two reasons given in these two verses. The verses say, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So that's the first reason. Second, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's the second reason. That he gives. Now let's take those one at a time and see whether or not we can understand them and bring our hearts and minds into a happy agreement with these two statements. The first one is uh, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now we've already dealt with this in some detail about five weeks ago. And I'm not going to raise again the objection against this argument that I raised there. I'm just going to repeat. The simple, straightforward argument, as, as Paul sees it and as I see it from Genesis 2, namely, that when God, contemplating how to create man and woman in his image equally, decided to make man first, put him in the garden, instruct him concerning his responsibility for the garden and impart to him the moral vision for the garden, and then, secondly, to make woman from his side as his personal equal and his assistant to carry that responsibility for the garden into action, he meant to teach something by doing it that way. That's what Paul is saying. And what he meant to teach was that men ought to bear primary responsibility in relation to women for a pattern of initiation, for leadership, for protection, for provision. And I've tried to stress what that idea primary responsibility involves rather than total responsibility. And so I think Paul's first argument is a simple, straightforward one, that when he contemplated God's design in creation, he saw a teaching about how men and women ought to relate to each other with men taking a special initiative and responsibility in relation to women. And so it's not based on culture. It's not based on any particular problem there at Ephesus. It's based on the way God set things up at creation. Something is woven into the fabric of manhood and womanhood that makes this kind of church order the most fruitful, the most fulfilling, the most effective, the most satisfying when the two halves of the church, male and female, are humbling themselves in mutual respect and love toward each other.
The second thing is a little more difficult to understand, I think. Verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, most commentators historically have simply said what this means is women are more vulnerable to temptation or deception and therefore should not assume the primary responsibility for teaching and for leadership in the church. Now, let's just think about that for a minute before we decide whether that's right or wrong. I'm going to, I'm going to give another suggested interpretation to this verse, but let's just assume for a minute that's the right interpretation. Can we handle that for a minute? Um, it might be, you know. If that were the right interpretation, what would that say about the value of men and women in relationship to each other? Uh, as I have read research about men and women, and as I have watched the interaction of men and women over my life, I would say this. Men, or let's, women are more likely to be deceived in some kinds of situations, and men are more likely to be deceived in other kinds of situations. In other words, when anybody asks me a general question like, uh, you think women are weaker than men? Or do you think women are smarter than men? Or do you think women are more easily frightened than men? Or just any number of questions they could ask me. I always answer the same. I say, um, I think women are weaker than men in some ways, and men are weaker than women in some ways. And I think women are smarter than men in some ways, and I think men are smarter than women in some ways. And I think in some situations, women give in to fear more quickly, and in some kinds of situations, I think uh, men give in to fear more quickly. And that never satisfies anybody. But that's, that's truth, I believe. Now, what that says is that whenever you talk about superiority, inferiority, you better be real careful how you talk. Women are superior in singing soprano. Does that make men inferior? Yes, in singing soprano. And you could list a hundred things like that, probably. Therefore, even if this text does mean that there are some kinds of situations in which women are more vulnerable to deceit than men, that says nothing about the total value of men and women. Let me, let me use this picture for you. If you've got two columns here, here's a male double column and here's a female double column. And one column is called weaknesses and the other column is called strengths. Female weakness, female strength, male weakness, male strength. And you start putting pluses and minuses here. And you get to the bottom and you draw a line and you come up with a value quotient here of male, male uh, weaknesses and strengths added all together, and a quotient here for female weaknesses and strengths added all together. My understanding of being created in the image of God is that those two values at the bottom are the same. And 
if you take these two, these two uh, parallel columns with their holes and their checks and pluses and so on, and you lay them on top of each other, they perfectly complement each other so that it's real dangerous to call these, these so-called weaknesses weaknesses. Because while they might look like weaknesses by themselves considered, when you consider humanity or manhood and womanhood in community, the way God intended us to live, complementing each other's lives, what might look like a weakness might turn out to be the very thing which calls forth and heightens another strength so that all in all, it is more beautiful, more strong, more whole, more great, because there are these differences of strengths and weaknesses. In other words, any time you might feel like, as a man, you've been deprived something valuable. Childbearing, for example. I mean, how would you women feel if men just went on a raging crusade against God that we were denied that privilege? Which would be real easy to do. Or women, that they can't sing bass so well or something like that. If you, I mean, you just you make this list. Anytime you are inclined to think that you have been disadvantaged, I think you need to ask, all things considered, does it not come out with equal value at the bottom? It is so tricky and so uh, misguided to say that if in fact... There is a disposition in men toward one weakness. That men are, by virtue of that, inferior. Or a, a weakness in women that is characteristic of women. That by virtue of that, they are inferior or of less value. It's just not true. I don't think I need to protect the equal value of manhood and womanhood by imposing upon these two columns an egalitarian unisex mentality that protects at all costs that we must have exactly the same weaknesses and exactly the same strengths on both sides of the ledger. That's utterly naive. And yet that's what people feel so nervous to protect today, lest they be accused of some kind of prejudice or bias. So, all of that is a kind of parenthesis to say, should you agree with that traditional interpretation? All you'd have to do is back off and say, in some senses, women are more vulnerable to temptation or more vulnerable to deceit than others. And in Paul's judgment, that particular weakness implies that they should not be given the primary responsibility of leadership and teaching in the church. It does not say that there are not corresponding weaknesses and so on in manhood. Now, all that's kind of a parenthesis here, uh, because I'm going to offer another interpretation for this verse that I think has a lot to say for it. And I invite you to turn with me back to Genesis 2 so that I can commend this interpretation to you. Genesis chapter 2, we have to ask now, what does Paul mean when he says Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor? What is the point of that sentence? What, what's he getting at when he says that? And, and what uh, does that have to do with whether women should assume primary responsibility in the church for teaching and governing? 
Several observations from Genesis 3. I'm sorry, I said 2, I mean 3. The first observation from Genesis 3, verse 1, is that Satan, in the form of the serpent, approaches the woman and not the man. It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature and the Lord God that the Lord God made, and he said to the woman. Now, Paul saw that, and he thought it was significant. Something's going on here. Why did Satan do that? Why didn't he come to the man? Second observation. Adam is evidently with Eve at this moment. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but as you read the rest of the verses, verse 6 especially, now the RSV gets a phrase, just drops a phrase completely here for some reason, but if you've got an NIV or an NASB or a King James Version, you can see this real clearly. I'll read the New American Standard. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her. Mark that phrase. The, the, the NIV says, who was with her. Now, nowhere up to this point does it say she went and got him. Nowhere does it say he arrived. It just says there's an unbroken flow of interaction here. Satan talks, she thinks, she reaches, she eats, she hands some to Adam, he eats. There is no arrival, there's no departure. He's there, saying nothing, just listening and falling. Third observation, verse 17 of chapter 3, God expresses his disapproval not only of the eating of the tree, but that transaction of Adam and Eve. He says, because, talking to Adam now, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now those words, because you listened to the voice of your wife, where did he listen to her? There's not one word in Genesis 3 to the effect that she spoke to Adam. Not a word. You could, you could read in that she, they had a little conversation and she talked him into eating the tree. But that's not there. What's there is he was with her, verse 6, and if he was with her, he was hearing this dialogue with Satan. And God says, because of that, just standing there listening, cursed is the ground because of you. We argued four or five weeks ago that Adam had been created to be the moral guardian of the home and to take some initiative in being the leader, and he didn't do it. He forsook his responsibility as the moral guardian of the garden, and Satan's subtlety knew that God's created order was good, he knew that God had appointed man to have a special responsibility in leadership and guardianship, care for his wife. And he assaulted that order 
by just ignoring Adam as he stood there, looked straight at the woman and began to deal with her and take her to transgression. And Adam let her go. She was put in the position of being the spokesman, the leader, the defender of the garden. And both of them at that point slipped from their innocence and with that exchange of roles became very vulnerable to transgression. I think that's what Paul means. Now let me paraphrase verse 14, giving it that meaning. See if you think it will work. Verse 14 says, Adam was not deceived. I take that to mean Adam was not approached by the deceiver and was not dealing directly with the deceiver. If you want to say, in a sense, he was deceived, I think I would agree with you, in a sense. So you can speak of different senses in which people are deceived. He was not dealing directly with the deceiver. But, it says, the woman was deceived. Satan took up his conversation with the woman, drew her into the spokesman role, and led her directly first towards the actual transgression of the eating of the tree and Adam falling right into line all the way. Now, if that's right, if we're on the right track, the point of this text is not mainly that woman is more deceivable or that man is undeceivable. The point is this. When God's order is repudiated, it it results in ruin. When God's order is repudiated and forsaken, it brings damage and ruin into the world. And it is today, bringing damage and ruin into homes, churches, and society in general. Men and women are both both more vulnerable when the order of God is forsaken. Adam was a patsy. Nothing to brag about for Adam at that moment. Both are more vulnerable when they forsake the roles that God has given them. That's why the church is so imperiled. By the forsaking of the biblical model of 1 Timothy 2, 11-14. So what Paul is saying in summary then in these verses 11-14 to of 1 Timothy 2, is that men, spiritual, Christ-like, servant-leader men, ought to bear the primary responsibility for leading and teaching in the church. That is, they should be the elders. Because, one, in creating man first, God taught that men should have a special responsibility in leadership in relation to women. And two... Because in the fall of Adam and Eve, in the way, in the dynamic of the fall, there was a role reversal that taught that when that happens, damage and ruin comes upon relationships and the church. Now, I also promised last week that I would uh, step back at this time and try to spread the uh, the message outside the church and outside marriage. I want to talk about some single people. I want to talk about the marketplace in the, in the minutes we have, have left. And uh, 
books could be written on this, and so I know that I'm taking a great risk of selectivity here, and uh, we'll, we'll, with uh, some willingness, listen to any of your criticisms that I didn't say what you felt needed to be said here, but I've got uh, just a few minutes to talk about this massive issue of uh, does what I have been saying have an impact upon the way men and women relate to each other who are not married to each other and the way men and women relate to each other in the marketplace, in the workplace. I just want to say two things. One, first a word to single men in personal relationships with single women. This is very selective, and uh, I say it because of things I've watched over the years here and because I think it's real practical and even though it's uh, not where a lot of you are. First of all, single men, let's not pity ourselves too much that we didn't have the right kinds of dads, okay? I get real tired of having parents dumped on. We're all sick, okay? We're all weak. We all have insecurities. There are male weaknesses and male insecurities. Let's not blame dad, okay? He bears some responsibility, but we're grown up now. Here we are. We're all together with our weaknesses and our insecurities. We may not have had the model we needed of a loving, humble, caring dad who showed us how to treat a woman. All right. All right. But here we are. We're grown up. We're responsible now. We can change. We can learn. We can do what we ought to do. If we trust God, He can show us how to relate to women in a mature and humble and responsible way, even if we never saw it done at home the way we, we would like to have seen it done. That's the first thing I want to say to, to single men. The second thing is, and this may be the most significant, I believe the implication of all that I've said in the past six weeks is that single men bear the primary responsibility for a pattern of initiative in relation to single women. Bear a responsibility for a pattern of initiative in relation to women. And the reason I say pattern of initiative is because it does not call into question a man's sense of responsibility for that if now and then a group of women take the initiative to get a group of guys together with them. That doesn't call into question the principle. But I think I can say with a great deal of certainty for those women, and I think I can say with even greater certainty for God, that those women, the single women in this church, don't want that to be the pattern. It ought not to be the pattern as God has set things up. The pattern ought to be men taking responsible to make things happen in relation to women, not vice versa. I think a lot of guys don't take that kind of initiative, either individually or in groups, because they are afraid of rejection. I know that was the case for me in, in college, uh, not to mention high school. <laughs> And things haven't changed much as I watch. Uh, I think the only reason I'm married is because something happened accidentally one afternoon. And the, 
the basement of Fisher Hall in a fine arts room where I happened to be sitting there and Noel happened to be sitting there with a bunch of common friends and we just accidentally talked for two hours. Because I sure would have never had the nerve probably to set that up. We men are real chicken-hearted. And, and it's because, I can just tell you, for me, to, the thought of getting on the phone and suggesting to Noel out of the blue that we do something and hearing her say no was just almost too much to handle. So you, you women just have to realize we're a pretty insecure bunch of people, right? And uh, I know that uh, that's the case. I think it's a faith issue, but uh, I think, as I've watched here now for nine years, today is the end of my ninth year at Bethlehem, and I have watched for nine years the single scene, and I don't think it's changed much. There are a lot of uh, intelligent, attractive, spiritual single women around here. They're not church hopping, trying to find husbands. They're content, trust enough in God to be happy in order to uh, be single the rest of their lives, but I can say without any doubt that for 99% of them, they would not be upset if a group of guys took the initiative to get together with a group of them and have pizza and rent chariots of fire to watch on the video or to go to a twins game or to uh, go as a group and visit some people in old folks' home or take some inner-city kids to the zoo. Or I just know I'm speaking for the vast majority of normal, intelligent satisfied, contented, single women when I say they're not going to get upset if you guys take some initiative to get together. Now, the reason I stress the group action is because uh, I think the emotional stakes are far less high in terms of rejection when you do things as groups. And I think it's far more natural both in high school and in college and after college, right up into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, to do things as groups and let individual relationships just naturally grow out of groups. That, that's, that's the way it's going to happen. And we shouldn't be all uptight about anything. We should just be all open that uh, some people are going to get married and some aren't. And we just ought to have a lot of get-togethers in groups. And men, single men, you are primarily responsible to make those things happen. That's the teaching, I believe, is implied in where we've been so far. And please, don't let your fears and inadequacies hinder you. The first time, I took a real live date with Noel. And uh, was going to put my arm <clears throat> on the seat behind Noel. <clears throat> I poked her right in the eye with my elbow. That's no joke. And look at this. We've been married 20 years, and I can't wait for her to get back from Guatemala. <laughs> now, one last thing here about the workplace. Um, does what I have said imply anything about the kinds of jobs you women should take, which might involve you in supervising men? A real practical issue, right? <clears throat> now... I'm going to give an answer that I'm sure will be unsatisfactory because it's broad, general, principial, rather than specific and outlining women's work and men's work in the world. Um, so here, here goes. Uh, I believe that there are uh, 
different kinds of leadership. Some are appropriate and some are inappropriate for, for women. And uh, to try to scope out what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, there are two scales or two continuums on which leadership can be measured. One is a, a personal, impersonal scale. So leadership falls on here. And one is a directive and non-directive scale. Let me give you an illustration so you'll know what I mean. A woman who designs a traffic pattern of a city, a civil engineer or whatever they call them, I don't know, um, who sits down and figures out which streets should be one way and which where should have right turn only and different things like that. A woman who does that is, is basically guiding men all day long. He's totally controlling the traffic pattern of the city, exerting incredible leadership in one sense, right? Uh, but it is utterly and totally impersonal. Because as the men go down the one-way streets and take their turns, there is no personal woman sitting in the side of him saying, turn right, turn left, go straight one way. It's, it's totally impersonal, although the leadership is there, in a sense. That would be an example of... Uh, very impersonal. Of course, the most personal kind of relationship would be a husband-wife situation. The non-directive and directive continuum would be illustrated like this. A drill sergeant would probably epitomize the directive leadership. Right, left, right, left, about, face, halt. Just boom, boom, boom. Very directive. And the non-directive kind of leadership would proceed by entreaty and suggestion and the best example I could think of of that was Abigail in uh, second, 1 Samuel 25, 23. If you want to read a beautiful illustration of how a woman led a king out of one behavior into another behavior, precisely where she wanted him to be and where he didn't want to be at first, and did it in the most incredibly non-directive way, you read those verses 23 to 35 of 1 Samuel 25. She was totally successful in guiding David's behavior. Just like, by the way, 1 Peter 3, 1 says a Christian woman should try to be towards her unbelieving husband. Without a word, get him to be a Christian. Find a way to guide him toward Christ. Now, here's my principle. To the degree that a woman's leadership of man is personal, it needs to be non-directive. And to the degree that it is directive, it needs to be impersonal. To the degree that a woman consistently offers directive, personal leadership to a man, to that degree will his God-given manhood, his sense of responsibility in the relationship, be compromised. Because what's at stake? What's at stake every time a man and woman face each other? is not merely competence. That is utterly naive. It is utterly naive to think that the only thing that's at stake when a man and woman in the workplace face each other is competence in their jobs. That's crazy. What is at stake is also whether the God-given manhood and womanhood of each are affirmed in the dynamics of the relationship. Whether manhood and womanhood are appropriately affirmed in the dynamics of the relationship. Well, that's my answer. And that's as far as I'm going to take it. And I will trust the women and men led by the Holy Spirit to ask for yourselves 
which things in society are appropriate for me to do and which aren't. Now, I close with just this paragraph. I feel like what I've done in the last seven weeks is simply uh, show you that there's a beautiful ballet to learn and there's an exciting drama to be a part of. It's more beautiful and more exciting because we are so different as male and female. And my challenge to you is that you take up uh, the script of God's Word and that you ask Him to help you learn your unique part, your personal part in the drama, because the world is in desperate need of seeing how true manhood and true womanhood relate to each other. And knowing that there is so, so, so much more to say, I'm going to recommend two books as I close. I've never done this before, but I'm going to do it. I mean, at the end of a sermon. Weldon Hardenbrook, Missing from Action, Vanishing Manhood in America for the Men. I've only read 70 pages of this, so I'm risking recommending it, not having read the rest. But it is so good and so helpful that I... I'm going to go ahead and risk it. I recommend this highly for the rediscovery of manhood. The Death of Masculinity, Four False Icons, When Manhood Came to America, From Patriarch to Patriot, The Vanishing Breed, Confessions of a Fish Out of Water, It's a Crime to be a Male, A Model for Manhood, Father is Not a Four-Letter Word, Marks of Manly Love, Returning to Manhood. And for the women... Rhonda Chervin, feminine, free, and faithful. She's a Catholic teacher of philosophy. And uh, this book moved me very, very deeply. Feminine, free, and faithful. Rhonda Chervin, Ignatius Press. There's so much more to say. Let's keep learning and growing together. Let's stand for prayer. O God in heaven, we commend ourselves into your merciful care now. Many loose ends are left, and that's, I think, Lord, as it should be, because the Holy Spirit reigns, and we must not tighten the reins too tightly on particular roles. Grant, I pray, that men and women would become all that you want us to be, and may the drama be beautiful for the world to see. In Jesus' name, amen.